0: Welcome to Celebrate Poe, every Monday night at 12 o'clock midnight. This is episode 67, Translating Vampires. This is George Bartley, and I'd like to welcome you to a special two-part edition of Celebrate Poe. But first, I'd like to apologize for mentioning in the last episode uh, that this episode was going to be about the black vampire, the first vampire story written in the United States. When I got into the story, I had no idea that it was so complex. It deals with some various serious issues, and I want to be sure to give it the attention it deserves. For example, many scholars feel that the use of a vampire in the story, the sucking of life out of a victim, is a metaphor for slavery. Now wrap your head around that one. And Now this was written in the early 19th century, and already they saw racism as a major evil. And the Black Vampire, with its use of Black Insurrection, is very much ahead of its time, again especially for the early 19th century. So I'm going to really delve into the Black Vampire for the episode coming out at midnight on August the 2nd, and that will be three weeks from today. Now, uh, for the next two weeks, Celebrate Poe deals with the subject of translation using some real-world examples, a lot more interesting than it might sound. Next week, I'll be talking about the process of interpreting a play into American Sign Language, in this case a production of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream by the Indianapolis Shakespeare Company at the Taggart Amphitheater on July the 22nd, 23rd, and 24th and then also on July the 29th, 30th, and 31st. I'll be the American Sign Language or ASL interpreter for the deaf on Thursday, July the 29th. I'll talk about the process of interpreting a Shakespearean play using, in this case, America, uh, um, using *A uh, Midsummer Night's Dream*. Uh, again, and this, this is Shakespeare's spoken English into American Sign Language. And I don't want you to think this is something that, uh, that I'm doing on a lark or just uh, learned overnight. I mean, I've been doing this for more years than I care to think. This has been my profession. So I'm going to really get into this episode, and I think you'll enjoy it too. But the episode for tonight deals with an entirely different dynamic, interpreting poems, static words on a page. I kind of got psyched up for this episode because it touches on three areas that uh, you might think have nothing to do with each other. And I thought it was really cool to think of the intersection of these three areas. Okay, first is the most famous translator of Poe's works, two, translating poetry, and three, get this, vampires. Yes, vampires. You can even make that part of the intersection. Now, most scholars will agree that the most influential and well-known translator of Poe's works was Charles Baudier from France, a highly influential poet in his own right. In 1847, Baudelaire became first acquainted with the works of Edgar Allan Poe. He described reading the works as an almost mystical experience, and even claimed that Poe's poems and tales had long existed in Baudelaire's own brain, but had never taken shape. Baudelaire basically saw Poe as his American counterpart. He then became largely occupied with translating Poe's works, and his translations were widely praised. Now, Baudelaire was not the first French translator of Poe, but his quote-unquote scrupulous translations were considered among the best. This podcast plans to devote several episodes to Charles Baudier in the future. After all, Poe is widely popular in France largely due to Baudier's translations. As you know, a, I get really excited when I look at the stats for this show, and let me say again, my podcast hosting company does not mind any personal information or anything creepy like that. But I do get an excellent breakdown of where listeners for Celebrate Poe live. Currently over 2,200 downloads in 47 countries. The reason I'm uh, talking about all this is, uh, well, first, uh, not surprisingly, more listeners are from the United States than any other country. But the country that has the second highest number of listeners is France. Edgar Allan Poe, or as they say in France, Edgar Poe, is wildly popular there. Now, first, regarding translating poetry... Well, uh, think of uh, a a good translation, say, a a work that has been translated, a work like Dante's Inferno, or the Iliad, or the Odyssey, or really any Greek or Roman literature. That work depends on a good translation. Without a good translation, most of us would have no idea what the author is talking about. And translation can be even harder when it comes to poetry. Poetry. It is important for the translator to stay as close to the meaning and even structure of the poem as possible. Now, I could go on and on and on about the ins and outs of a good translation, but I think the best way to express what I am trying to say is to use a poem by none other than Charles Baudelaire. This poem is from Fleur de Mal, or Flowers of Evil, and is called Les Vampires. Yes, an intense poem by a serious writer about vampire. Now, that is really cool. Now, except for those of you in France, I think it's fair to assume that if I read the whole poem in French, even if I knew how, uh, you uh, might start losing interest and fast. So I'm going to put my husband on the spot. He, he does know French a lot better than me. I'm going to ask him to read the first four lines of the poem in French. Let's hope that he agrees. Well, here he is, and thank you, Scott. Toi qui comme un coup de couteau, dans mon coeur, plantif et entrée. Toi qui fort comme un troupeau, My apologies to uh, you French purists, and I know that might not be perfect, but I hope that gives you a general idea of uh, what uh, one of the verses sounds like. Now, I promise you that the rest of this podcast will be in English. I think you can learn a lot about, though, the translation process by looking at several different French to English translations of that poem, and it is a lot easier to wrap your head around a stanza one at a time instead of trying to read several stanzas in the whole poem and then trying to compare them. Oh, yes, and to keep all this straight, with all the going back and forth between translations, I had to make a table of the four translations, and that's what I'm working from. So, starting with the translation of the first verse by William Aguilar, You who, like the stab of a knife, entered my plaintive heart, You who, strong as a herd of demons came, ardent and adorned, And then a translation of the same stanza by Roy Campbell. You who like a dagger plowed into my heart with deadly thrilled. You who stronger than a crowd of demons mad and dressed to kill. And now George Dillon. And remember, all of these are experienced translators. Thou who abruptly as a knife, didst come into my heart. Thou who a demon hoard into my life, didst enter wildly dancing through. And a translation by Jacques Leclerc. Thou sharper than a dagger thrust, sinking into my plaintive heart, thou frenzied and arrayed in lust, strong as a demon host whose art. Now back to William Aguilar for the second verse. To make your bed and your domain of my humiliated mind Infamous bitch to whom I'm bound like the convict to his chain. And Roy Campbell, of my dejected soul have made your bed, your lodging and domain, to whom I'm linked, unseemly jade, as is a convict to his chain. And George Dillon, the doorways of my sense unlatched to make my spirit thy domain harlot to whom I am attached as convicts to the ball and chain. And Jacques Leclerc, Possessed my humbled soul at last, made it thy bed and thy domain, strumpet to whom I am bound fast, as is the convict to his chain. Now, for the last four stanzas of the original, I'm going to go back and read the respective translations of that stanza by William Agler Roy Campbell, George Dillon, and Jacques Leclerc in turn. First, like the stubborn gambler to the game, like the drunkard to his wine, like the maggots to the corpse, accursed, accursed be you. Or, as the gamester to his dice, or as the drunkard to his dram, or as the carrion to its lice, I curse you, would my curse could damn. As gamblers to the wheel's bright spell, as drunkards to their raging thirst, as corpses to their worms accursed, be thou, O be thou damned to hell. And then the final translation of that stanza like the stubborn gambler to the game, like the drunkard to his wine, like the maggots to the corpse, accursed, accursed be you. And then four translations of the next verse. I beg the swift poignard to gain for me my liberty. I ask perfidious poison to give aid to my cowardice. By the way, I, I, I know that uh, the word poignard was new to me. I looked it up and it means a small, slender dagger. Some of the other translations in this group will use blade or sword. Now, to continue with the next three translations of this verse, I have besought the sudden blade to win for me my freedom back. Perfidious poison I have prayed to help my cowardice, alack. And then, I have entreated the swift sword to strike that... I at once be freed. The poisoned fill I have implored to plot with me a ruthless deed. By the way, by the way, a fill or file is defined as a container for poison. I beg the swift poignard to gain for me my liberty. I ask perfidious poison to give aid to my cowardice. And then four translations of the next to last stanza. Alas, both poison and the knife contemptuously said to me, you do not deserve to be freed from your accursed slavery. Both poison and the sword disdain my cowardice and seem to say you are not fit to be unchained from your damned servitude away. And now the third translation of that. Alas, the filla and the blade do cry aloud and laugh at me. They art not worthy of our aid. They art not worthy to be free. And, but sword and poison in my need, heap scorn upon my craven mood, saying, unworthy to be freed from thine accursed servitude. And now the final stanza. And here are four translations of that stanza. Fool, if from her domination our efforts could deliver you, your kisses would resuscitate the cadaver of your vampire. And the second translation. You imbecile, since if from her empire we were to liberate the slave, you'd raise the carrion of your vampire by your own kisses from the grave then the third translation though one of us should be the tool to save thee from thy wretched fate thy kisses would resuscitate the body of thy, of thy vampire fool and finally o fool if thou or th- if through our efforts fate absolve thee from thy so- sorry plight thy kisses would resuscitate thy vampire's corpse for thy delight Now, thanks very much for staying with me. Uh, I hope you have seen that uh, all four translations express basically the same idea, but use different words. I'm sorry to say I don't speak French, so I can't go into it a great deal more than that. All four translations were quite different, but also right in their own ways. Each translation has a different emphasis with various shades of meaning. And that's one of the characteristics of great literature. For the rest of this episode, until I get to the sources section near the end, I would like to include a brief section from the next episode of this podcast. Now, Edgar Allan Poe and William Shakespeare both studied classical rhetoric when they attended school in England as young boys, although obviously not at the same time. One rhetorical technique Poe and Shakespeare undoubtedly learned was parallelism. Even speakers today use classical rhetorical devices to communicate with their audiences. Just to use one example, during President John F. Kennedy's inaugural address, he famously said, Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Parallelism is expressing and balancing two ideas, something that can be very pleasing to the ears. A similar way of expressing parallelism can be expressed in American Sign Language. It might take some work to figure it out, uh, but it can be very pleasing to the eyes. Uh, This can probably be best expressed by using what is perhaps the most famous line in all of Shakespeare, to be or not to be, that is the question in Act 3, Scene 1. Here is that same line in an original recording by John Barrymore, one of the greatest actors of all time. Some of you might know him better as Drew Barrymore's grandfather. To be or not to be, that is the question. I think that line is especially moving in this situation because this was at a time in his life when John Barrymore was facing his own mortality. Now that line is made up of 10 English words, and to top it all, none of them are uh, really American Sign Language. ASL has no state of being verbs, and the other concepts can be expressed through non manual motions. So what you'd need to do is first analyze the statement. Hamlet is weighing two alternatives, life to be and death or not to be. Then he shows that deciding between life and death is the question, or dilemma. A signer can therefore sign life on one hand, and death on the other hand, literally on one hand, and death on the other, showing that they are alternatives. Then the signer can look at the audience with lowered eyebrows. In ASL, that means this is a which statement, a choice between two alternatives. And the signer can even make it clearer by looking back and forth between the right and left hands to emphasize the decision between life and death, and possibly even putting in which at the end to emphasize it. Of course, it would probably be physically impossible for an ASL interpreter to figure out all of that uh, to figure out the best way that he or she believes Shakespeare uh, is trying to get an idea across into be or not to be right there on the spot. It takes a lot of planning and figuring out how it all fits together. But it's kind of like a play. I mean, you just don't make up lines on the spot. It takes a lot of practice and a lot of rehearsal and working together. Now, instead of signing 10 words, which are technically not really American sign language, the interpreter is signing two, or at the most, three concepts. Much easier to see, and a lot easier on the interpreter's hands. And as an added bonus, the deaf audience sees, instead of hears, the parallelism of life and death, deciding between two choices, and they are physically on the same level. So, you see, they're definitely a decision, a choice. It amazes me that Shakespeare was able to write plays with hundreds of lines full of meaning in what must have been a very short time. Of course, if the interpreter has a different interpretation of the line to be or not to be, such as uh, one alternative being reaching your potential versus living a humdrum life, and I've heard people say that, uh, the signs would be quite different. But I don't think this is what Shakespeare meant. And I, most scholars believe that it is an existential, existential question of life or death. Again, my interpret, ter, interpretation is that Shakespeare, in the character of Hamlet, is considering the existential choice of life or death. Uh, Now, as if I haven't talked about this enough, uh, I'm going to skip to another form of classical rhetoric in Shakespeare. Say, look at his use of anaphora. And before you say, what in the blank is anaphora? Well, anaphora is defined as the repetition of the same word or groups or group of words at the beginning of successive clauses, sentences, or lines. Anaphora can be expressed in American Sign Language through an emphasis on the words or the group of words being repeated. Let me show you what I mean. For example, the interpreter can emphasize the sign for this in this royal throne of kings, this sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of of Mars. Amars. This Other Eden, Demma Paradise, in The Life and Death of King Richard II, Act 2, Scene 1. Sources for this episode include Flowers of Evil by Charles Baudelaire, Translating Poetry by Daniel Wiesport, Edgar Allan Poe, Rhetoric and Style by Brett Zimmerman, Signing Shakespeare by George Bartley, Will in the World How Shakespeare Became Shakespeare by Stephen Greenblatt. Why not visit my podcast website at celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com? That's celebratepoe all one word, dot buzzsprout, all one word.com. Click on the episode you want to learn more about to see its show notes and a transcript. Now, as mentioned before, the next episode will look at translating or interpreting into American Sign Language a Shakespearean play, in this case, a Midsummer Night's Dream. In contrast to the printed word, where the author usually works in solitude, a play greatly depends on a team effort. And the Indianapolis Shakespeare Company is a great group of actors who exemplify the best of that effort. In the future, Celebrate Poe will be taking a deep dive into the life and writings of Poe, starting with some of the influences on his writing. There are so many subjects involved in trying to understand Edgar Allan Poe and his complex works, but I feel that a solid understanding of his greatness rests mainly on two aspects. First, his creativity, and by creativity I'm including his inspirations and imagination— And I believe the second main reason for his greatness is his use of language, his understanding of words and how to use them, especially in producing an effect. Before this podcast deals with Edgar Poe's education in England, I want to concentrate on vampire and even werewolf stories uh, that uh, may have served as a major influence on the writer. Then Celebrate Poe will specifically cover Poe's years as a child in England, especially his education. I am finding some exciting stuff regarding the information that he learned, especially in the form of classical rhetoric, to become one of America's greatest writers. Discussing classical rhetoric might seem a bit dry when you first look at it, but I have a feeling that you will find it fascinating and understand Edgar Poe in an exciting new way. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe, a deep dive into the life, times, and works of America's Shakespeare. Edgar Allan Poe.